Welcome once again to Searching the Scriptures radio broadcast. We do appreciate you tuning in again this week as we look into the Word of God here on the Searching the Scriptures radio program. I'm Pastor Travis Alltop. This is a ministry of Bluegrass Pike Baptist Church in Danville, Kentucky. Thank you for tuning in again today. And as always, we invite our listening audience to get your Bible open and follow along with us in the Scriptures that you might see the Word of God and the promises of God for yourself. You can check us and make sure we're telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, what we've been doing here the last few studies is we have looked at the seven last sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ while he hung upon Calvary's cross. Seven in the Bible, if you know much about your Bible at all, seven is the number of completion or perfection. And when God perfects something, he does it in groups of seven or does it in numbers uh, divisible by seven. You'll find that over and over throughout the scriptures. And so here we have a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who is completing and finishing the work that his father gave him to do. The first thing we read, the first words that are out of our Lord Jesus's mouth that are recorded in the Bible is uh, found in Luke chapter 2, verses 49 and 50, where the Bible shows a 12-year-old Jesus Christ in the temple telling his mother, I must be about my father's business. And that was the uh, the goal, and that was the mindset of our Lord and Savior when he was here during his earthly ministry, was to be about the Father's business and to complete the work that he had given him to do and complete a work he did. On the cross where the complete finished work was performed, we find Jesus Christ dying during the six hours from nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon. And we've studied four of the seven things that he said. And by way of quick review, during the first three hours of our Lord's suffering on the cross, nailed to the cross between 9 a.m. and 12 o'clock noon, we find three things that he said. We find him saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do praying for his murderers. We find him in Luke 23, verses 42 and 43, answering the prayer of a repentant thief, a malefactor that got saved in his dying hours. And the Lord promises him a place in paradise, paradise with him that very day. He said, today, not tomorrow, but today, the soul lives on when a man dies. And he said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The third thing our Lord said from the cross was he looked at his dear mother Mary and he said, woman, behold thy son. And then he looked at the disciple John and said, behold thy mother. So we find him making provision uh, for his earthly mother in his death. Now from 12 o'clock until three, we looked at it last week. And we looked in our last study at the darkness that came upon him. And after three hours of darkness and desolation, the Lord Jesus Christ cried out his fourth cry from Calvary's cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we looked in at the very mysterious and deep uh, truth about the Lord Jesus Christ becoming our representative. Listen, when he died in darkness... He died for us. He tasted death by the grace of God. The Lord Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. And he died in darkness and desolation. You'll notice in Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 and 46 where Christ cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You'll find that, and you'll recall that his first statement was, Father, forgive them. His last statement is going to be, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And listen, he called him father at the beginning of his sufferings and at the close of his earthly life, he calls him father again. But during those three hours of darkness from midday until three o'clock in the afternoon, which the Bible refers to as the ninth hour, 
we find him crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he cries out that because he had become at that point a curse for us. He was being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The Bible says that the Lord, the Father, God the Father, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, as the time that Christ was, quote, made sin for us. Listen, Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, the perfect one, the pure one, went down under the wrath of God for us, suffered our punishment for our sins, not for any sins that he had committed, for he had none. In him was no sin. And listen, in all points he was tempted like as we are, and quote, yet without sin. But the sinless Lamb of God came down, and he came down and was born of a virgin, grew up and lived a perfect sinless life, kept the law, made it honorable, fulfilled the law, for 33 and a half years and then went to Calvary to become a curse for us. And listen, he took the cup of wrath from the hand of his father and he drained that cup. He drank the cup and he drained the dregs of that cup. You say, what's the cup of wrath? What are you talking about? Do you recall how the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in the garden, Father? Uh, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, amen, he prayed that. You say, what was the cup? Well, it wasn't the fear of death. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I uh, lay down my life. No man taketh it from me. Jesus Christ was in control of his life at all times. But the thing that he dreaded most was that cup of wrath, that eternal spotless son of God becoming sin for us. Oh, listen, this is a subject that's deeper than I can go. However, I know it's true. We find in Psalm 75 verse 8, The Bible says in the hand of the Lord, and that's capital L-O-R-D, the Father, there is a cup. What's in the cup? The Bible says the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Friend, when Jesus Christ suffered on Calvary's cross during the darkness of from noon until three, in that desolation and darkness, our Savior cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Listen, uh, you can explain it away if you want to, but that's nothing more than the Son of God becoming sin for believers, for me and you, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ. We're free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has bled and now there's remission. And you say, how is that possible? Well, listen, God satisfied all of his character traits at Calvary. Listen, God is love and it's displayed and declared from a hill called Mount Calvary. No doubt about it. God loves sinners, but listen to me. God is also holy. God has a thing called justice that must be upheld. If he somehow overlooked your sin or if he somehow excused your sin and didn't do it in a holy and a just way, then God would become unholy. And my friend, that'll never happen. God is holy and in his holiness, he must punish sin. So the only way he can do that, if he will not punish believers for their sin, it's because that punishment has already fallen on someone else, on a substitute. That is why Jesus Christ became a man and therefore he was made flesh and then he was made to be sin. This is the only just and righteous way that God has for clearing us and justifying sinners. Listen, I'm going to heaven not because I'm a good man, but because God has declared me a just man because I put my faith 
in his son. I put my faith in his only begotten son because Jesus Christ, here's the good news, died for my sins, was buried and rose again. My sins have been punished already, all of them. Jesus Christ drank the cup that I so rightly deserve, the cup that every sinner will face on the day of judgment, the cup that every sinner will continue to drink from throughout all of eternity as they perish in a burning hell. Listen, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The only way God in his holiness can clear a sinner is if someone else would be willing to pay for that sinner's transgressions. And my friend, the God man, God manifest in the flesh did just that. Listen to him cry out at three o'clock at the end of the darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did he cry that? Because at that moment he had become our representative. Listen, he dies the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. And listen, that is a mysterious thing. That's a deep thing. The well is deep and I have nothing to draw with. <laughs> but I can tell you this, that I will not face the wrath of God or the curse of God. It is off of me. As greatly as my transgressions call for it, the curse of God will never fall on me. The punishment for sin will never come my way. Amen. The wrath of God will never touch me. Why? Because my substitute, my loving Savior, my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ, has stood condemned in my place and suffered for my sins in my place, bearing my sins in his own body on the tree. Blessed be his wonderful name. Let me ask you a question. Are you saved? You say, well, I'm just not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? Do you have a savior that you rely upon, that you've cast yourself upon? Now, see, you don't know you're saved if you're trying to save yourself. You can never know. If you think you're going to save yourself by your own good works, then yeah, I can understand why you're not real sure. I talked to a religious man here not too many years ago, sat right in my office. He's a member of a, I won't tell you what church he's a part of, because then I would get some kind of uh, controversy stirred up, and you wouldn't hear the things I'm going to say over the next minute and a half, and this is important. But this very religious man who had been faithful uh, to his church and to do all that his church told him to do, as we discuss the doctrines of New Testament salvation and the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, uh, he was offended by my position that a man was justified by grace through faith. And he said, so, uh, you know, I said, well, what do you have? What's a man have to do to have eternal life? And this uh, deceived older man looked at me and said, well, you've got to keep the commands of God. You've got to do unto others as you have them do unto you. And he goes, of course, you have to have faith in Christ, but you need to be baptized. You need to uh, support and be a part of the church that Christ founded. And he listed off all of these things. <clears throat> and I asked him if he knew where he was going when he died. You know what his answer was? Don't you know? He said, nobody can know that for sure. Do you know why he doesn't know for sure? Because he cannot be certain that he's quite done enough. Now, he thinks he's done pretty good. But he's not sure that he's done enough. My friend, listen, if you're trusting anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ to make you right with God, to, to deliver you from hell and from the wrath to come, my friend, you'll never know if you've done enough if you're trusting your own work. That's why the Bible, uh, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking of his Jewish brethren who were deeply stained with religion, he said this, he said, I, ha I, ha I bear them record, listen, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. 
and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Listen, for Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believeth. You see, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't say sign a decision card. I didn't say have an emotional experience. I said when you come to Jesus Christ and you believe upon him with all of your heart and you cast yourself upon his promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, when you do that, that's when you pass from death to life. But as long as you're trusting something you're doing, you'll never know if you've done enough. The Bible says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And that's why the scripture tells us in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How and where is God's mercy? It's in a person, the person of Jesus Christ who became sin for us and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Listen, that Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. And I can tell you, I thank God and I praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ because when I look there, I see the sacrifice that God made for me. I see my surety, the one who went my bail and paid my ransom and stood it condemned in my place and opened not his mouth. He did that because he was dying for Travis Alltop. Are you saved? Do you have a savior? Have you come to this wonderful savior that died for you when you were yet without strength? Christ died for the ungodly. Have you seen that bloody tree as a payment for your ungodliness? Or do you still think you're a pretty good person trying to, quote, do your best? May God open your eyes. May you see today. May God remove the blinders that Satan has put upon your uh, spiritual understanding. May you turn to Christ today. Now that is what my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me is all about. But Jesus went on to say a couple of more things. We're going to look at it today. Look at John chapter 19 and verse 28. After this, I'm in John 19 verse 28. We've seen four things. Of the seven statements from the cross of Christ, we've looked at four. And they're all deeply rich with meaning and truth. Here we come to the fifth saying in John 19, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he suffered for us. He has, he has suffered like no man ever suffered in our place, the just for the unjust. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, Here's the uh, fifth saying. He says, I thirst. He said, why did he say I thirst? Well, because he was suffering in more ways than just physically. You know, that thirst comes about uh, when a man has had a, done a hard day's work. That's when men get thirsty. Well, can I tell you that Jesus Christ didn't do just a, a hard day's work. He did a full eternity's work in six hours because he's the God man. Christ was God manifest in the flesh. And here after the darkness has come upon him and he suffered in silence and desolation and darkness, he cries out, I thirst. Do you know why? Listen, desolation, forsaken of God, darkness, judgment of God, thirst, the wrath of God. All of these things are what sinners, guilty, lost sinners feel when they enter into hell. When he cries out, the Lord Jesus suffering for us on the cross, and he cries out here in John nineteen twenty eight, I thirst. I am reminded of the rich man who died and went to hell in Luke 16. 
What's the first thing he cried out? He cried out in his torments and in his suffering. He said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. The people in hell never do get water, but they still have a desire for it. Why? Because they're suffering under the wrath of God for their sins. And here Jesus Christ cries out like every lost man will, I thirst. This is Christ suffering our hell on the cross for us. He says, I thirst. Listen, men who've been wounded often burn up with thirst. I read about uh, in the Civil War when those uh, battlefields would be littered with wounded men. Uh, some of the most agonizing cries that the living soldiers would talk about in their diaries years later was the agonizing cries of those who were crying out for water. If you go today to the Fredericksburg battlefield, you'll find a great statue that's been erected by a name, for a man in memory of a man named Richard Kirkman. Kirkman was a uh, Confederate soldier, and he was at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. Now, those of you uh, Civil War historians know exactly what all went on at that battle. But for those of you who no longer read uh, American history, let me just bring you up to date. December 13th and 14th <clears throat> were two days where the Confederates were entrenched behind a, a concrete or, or stone wall. And uh, General Burnside, who was in charge of the Union Army, began to send troops across a field to attack uh, uh, General Lee's troops. They were entrenched on the high ground behind a wall. They had the great advantage. Burnside sent 14 waves of troops across that field, and the Confederates mowed them down. At the close of that battle, I think it was around... Uh, Statistics differ from book to book, but basically you're looking between 15 and 17,000 casualties for the Union Army to about four to 5,000 for the Confederate Army. It was a three to one kill ratio. And listen, that night uh, got real cold there and the Confederates were entrenched safely behind that wall. And as uh, darkness fell, Kirkman could hear the cries of those wounded men who were dying and who were suffering and wounded laying out in the field between the Union line and the Confederate line. Early that morning, Kirkman got uh, uh, permission. He said, I want to go over the wall. I want to take some water to those men. And the uh, Confederate general said, you can't do it. They'll, they'll shoot you as soon as you climb the wall. He said, well, let me go under a white flag. They wouldn't let him do that. And as the story unfolds, finally, after so, uh, being so troubled, he said, I'm going to go whether you let me or not. He said, fine, soldier, you do. He goes, what you need to do, but you can't put up a white flag. So when Kirkman went over the wall, he had about a dozen canteens. And as he began to make his way toward the bodies, the Union officers and Union men began to fire at him. And when they saw what he was doing, the Union generals began to holler, cease fire, cease fire, because they saw him kneel and raise the head of a wounded Union soldier and begin to pour water down that man's throat to ease his pain and to ease his suffering. They said he went back and forth across that wall, taking water to those men for over two hours early on the morning of December 14th. And so they called him the angel of Marie's Heights because those men that were burning up with fever and thirst from their bleeding wounds uh, always could remember. And those men could remember a man by the name of Richard Kirkman that ministered water to those men in their dying hour. 
And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing worse than burning up with feverish thirst. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ is crying out. I can tell you what the word I thirst means, or that phrase I thirst means. It means our Savior suffered as our representative. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. And he knows what it is to suffer because this is the humanity of Jesus Christ on full display. Listen, Jesus Christ, uh, when he died on the cross... Uh, shows his humanity by thirsting. Listen, God never gets thirsty, and yet it was God. You say, well, how is it? This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses get confused and run people off in the ditch with their false teaching and their heresy. They can't understand how a man could be God because, after all, God doesn't get tired, and yet Jesus Christ got tired. God doesn't get hungry, and yet Jesus Christ was hungry. God, uh, amen, uh, doesn't say some of the things that Jesus Christ said. How can he be God? Certainly when he cries out on the cross, I thirst, God doesn't get thirsty, does he? That's their reasoning. The problem is they forget one great truth, and that is God wrapped himself in human flesh. He became a man that he might be tempted in all points like as we are, and so that he might be able to be a faithful high priest. I don't have a God that cannot be touched with the feelings of my infirmities. Therefore it behooved him to take upon him uh, the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliations for the sins of the people. For that he in himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to secure them that are tempted. Here's what the Jehovah's Witnesses and the cult leaders forget. Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh uh, when he told uh, Thomas and all of them and Philip, they said, show us the father. He said, he that has seen me hath seen the father. You say, I don't understand that. That's because uh, the mystery of godliness is a great mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. When Christ was hungry, when he was tired, when he wept, when he cried out, I thirst. That's not, that's not uh, to say that God does that unless God came down and limited himself as a man and became our representative. And blessed be his wonderful name. I thank God for the God-man, Christ Jesus, the man that Job prayed for in Job chapter 9. He cried out, Job did in his complaint. He said, there is nobody that can lay his hand on both of us. There's in other words, Job is saying, I want to talk to God, but God is out there and I can't get to him. And, and he's not a man like I am. He said, I need somebody, I'm paraphrasing here, you look it up in Job chapter 9, verses 30 through 34, Job is crying out for the thing that man needed. Man needs a mediator. Who is it that can lay his hand upon both of us? In other words, Job wanted somebody that could put his hand on God the Father, as well as put his hand upon him, and then bring them to the reconciling table. That is exactly, my friend, what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He crossed the great chasm between between man and his creator. And he came down born of a virgin, bypassing Adam's sin. And he became one of us and he lived and died a perfect sinless man. And he became our representative and he suffered as our substitute as the lamb of God in our place. Listen, that gospel account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily calls him the son of man. When you come to the gospel of John, it's primary purpose and his primary title is son of God. You say, which is he? He's both. He's both man and 
and he's both God. Listen, that baby that was born in a manger there in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, 2, was a baby that was from everlasting. Well, listen to me. Mary gave birth to the, to the humanity, the body of Jesus Christ, but he had existed long before he came down and humbled himself and became poor for our sakes through the virgin's womb. Are you listening today? Are you getting this? Listen, when Christ cried out, I thirst, that's a picture. And that's a, the, uh, him suffering as a man, suffering for us. We have a great high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He does know what it is to be deserted. He knows what it is to thirst. He knows what it is to be lied about, to be mocked. He knows what it is to feel pain. He can sympathize. He can secure us. He can come and help us. Why? Because he's walked in our shoes. And blessed be his wonderful name, the God of all creation came down and suffered and died for us on this cross. And here we see in his fifth saying, I thirst we see the great truth that our Savior suffered as a man. Amen and amen. And I thank God for the man Christ Jesus. That Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. You see, salvation is so much greater than what most preachers make it. It's not just come down here, sign a card, accept Christ, and he'll forgive you. No, listen, you need to stop long enough, and you need to meditate on these things. Are you out there listening to the sound of my voice? Are you still unsaved? Well, why not come to the Savior? You see, salvation is not in somebody's creed. It's not in somebody's denomination. Amen, I'm a Baptist, and I am not ashamed of it. But listen, I would never point someone to the Baptist church for their soul's salvation or redemption. Listen, salvation and redemption is not found in religion. It's not found in turning over a new leaf. It's not found in you promising God you're going to do better. No, my friend, you are helpless. You are hopeless. You're dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says that as a natural man, you seek not after the things of God. You can't see the things of God. And listen to me. The gospel can open your eyes to the truth that you are without strength and there is nothing good in you. You are corrupt from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You say, I don't believe that. That's because you still are thinking, amen, uh, from your own perspective, from the natural man's perspective. How about looking at what the Bible says about you, where the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How about where the Bible says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? How about the word of God that declares all under sin because we've all broken the law of God and we stand, amen, without excuse before him, guilty, guilty, guilty. What about where the Bible says there is none righteous? No, not one, not you, not me, not your sweet grandmother, not your nice neighbor. Oh, you may be moral, you may be upright and uh, viewed by your fellow man as a quote, good guy, but I'm telling you, good people die and go to hell. You got to be more than just a good guy. You've got to have your sins taken away. And that is why salvation is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. When Simeon went down to the temple in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, he goes down there and the Holy Ghost told him, you watch for that couple that comes in. There's going to be a young maiden come in and she's going to be holding an eight-day-old baby boy. That's the Christ child. That's the Lord's Christ. Well, sure enough, when Mary walked in to do for Jesus Christ as an eight-day-old baby after uh, the custom of the law, 
Old Simeon went over and took that baby up in his arms and he began to pray. And what did he pray? He said, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace for mine eyes. Listen, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. That salvation is in the person, Jesus Christ. That is why the Lord on his, in his earthly ministry between the ages of 30 and 33 and a half years old, he would say things like, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He would say, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. You see, salvation is in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. You know the old hymn we sing? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Those are good questions. See, I didn't ask, have you been down front to the altar? I didn't ask, have you been, uh, amen, uh, down front to sign a card? I haven't asked if you've made a trip into the baptistry. Please listen to me and look at the suffering Savior bleeding, dying there on the tree, dying for you. Have you ever received him? Have you gone to Jesus Christ and believed upon him? That Bible says this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. Sinner friend, those of you listening that have never been born again, you've never been redeemed. Your sins are still upon you. You say, what should I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's nothing in and of yourself you can do. Christ has done it all. He suffered. He died. He was wounded for your transgressions and he died and suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring you to God. Would you trust him with your soul today? Friend, fall on your face in repentance and cry out to Jesus Christ. The promise still stands. The door is still open for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm telling you, call on the one who suffered and died for you and rose from the dead. And Jesus said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out.